I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 4. And Bruce is going to be uh, giving it the last uh, sermon in the first half of the James series, which will be picked up after um, World Outreach. This is James chapter 4, we're going to be verses 1 through 6. That's page uh, 1201 in your pew Bible. And we're going to be talking about quarrels among us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Father God, we just, uh, we love you and we confess that we're selfish and God, we just pray that you would help us to be humble and to love you in the way that we ought, and that we would love one another in the way that we ought. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's the question of the ages. It's a question as old as Cain and Abel. In fact, it's the Rodney King question. Why can't we all just get along? The question has been somewhat turned into a cliche. Can't we all just get along? And the answer seems to be no, we can't. Nothing has changed much since that question was asked by Rodney King 30 years ago during the Los Angeles riots. And and even now today, national events and social media remind us daily that our nation is still in conflict. Feels like the National blood pressure has gone up 100 points in the last few years, and it actually shows no signs of coming down. The, the problem is not confined to our country. Every day brings news of conflict somewhere across this fallen world, whether it's Russia and Ukraine, Iran and the Middle East, China and Taiwan. We see it everywhere among us. Conflict is a part of everyday life. In fact, this conflict, it comes in all sorts of contexts within our lives. It might be a blow-up at home, a blow-up at work. It might be with family. It might be with friends. It's, it might even be with stranger in a fit of road rage. And conflict takes various forms as well. There's the conflict that very obvious falling out, and there's the unspoken animosity that can exist for years under the veneer of a friendship in a marriage. There is conflict that hurts and, and scars deeply, and there's the sort of conflict that might not even be recognized because one side 
just considers it a minor spat, while the other side, it is a huge deal. And then, of course, there's the baggage that people carry from conflict. Some carry bruising because of the wounds they've received. Others carry a tremendous amount of guilt because of the damage they know they have done to others. And so you don't have to look too far to see that that conflict is all around us. And I I wish I could stand here this morning and tell you that our, our world is marked by peace, but it's not. In fact, sadly, conflict does not cease at the door of the church. The battles that are a part of life in the world can just as easily become part of life within the church. Any two people here this morning have the potential for conflict. We, we know that about ourselves, and, and it can be just as common then for Christians and no less painful. And so this makes the question that, that James asks here in verse 1 of chapter 4 all the more relevant, all the more practical for us. What causes conflict? Or specifically, the way James asks it here in verse 1, is what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, at first glance, it it might seem that James is starting a a new line of thought here in chapter 4. You might remember last Sunday, we saw in chapter 3, verse 13, he again poses a, a question. He asks, who is wise and understanding among you? And now... Because James loves questions, he begins chapter 4, verse 1 with another question. What causes these quarrels and what causes fights among you? But these two questions are very closely related. James says, if you remember last Sunday, that that those who have godly wisdom show it by their beautiful life that is marked by meekness. But those who live by the world's wisdom are motivated by this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. But we saw last week that the world's wisdom doesn't work. In fact, James tells us in in verse 16 of chapter 3 that, that the result of the world's wisdom is disorder. In other words, it's chaos, it's confusion, it's conflict in every evil practice. In other words, the result of the world's wisdom, it destroys relationships. And the evidence now that James highlights for us here beginning in chapter 4, the evidence of of worldly wisdom specifically infecting our lives and in a church is conflict. What he calls these quarrels and these fights. But the result, as we saw last week, of godly wisdom, it produces, according to verse 18 in chapter 3, this this harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. So once again, James is is showing us something here. He wants us to see it. He wants us to see once again that God's way works. God's wisdom works. James wants us to see that there's a very clear link between chapters 3 and chapter 4 here. And if we don't live by God's wisdom then conflict will mark our lives, not peace. The point is simply this. If our lives are filled with conflict, if if churches are filled with conflict, with chaos and confusion, 
quarrels and fights in our relationships, then this is a, a telltale sign that James is raising for us that we are probably not living by godly wisdom, but instead by the ways and the wisdom of the world. Now, James wants us, he wants to show us the underlying cause of this conflict. He also wants to show us the healing cure for this conflict, but not before he makes a very shocking charge about us. Now, I, before we get into it, let me just admit, I freely admit, this is not an easy message to preach. And one of the reasons why is because it is not an easy message to hear. And so let's just get that out on the table here. This is not easy for me to preach. It's not easy for us to hear and to see ourselves in the mirror of God's word here this morning. And so I pray not only for myself that the spirit of God will work through me to preach this appropriately and truthfully to the word of God, but also that we would have open hearts to see what God's word has for us here this morning. So let's get into it. Number one, the underlying cause that James identifies for us here of conflict is this. It is selfish passions. Selfish passions. James poses a challenging question to the troubled churches he's writing to in verse 1. Notice it again with me. I hope you have your Bibles open and looking with me through this passage here. Notice what he writes in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Kind of makes you wonder if James is talking about a church service or a hockey game. Now, the word quarrels here, it refers to a state of long hostility. The word fights refers to a, a specific outburst of hostility. And both of these words suggest verbal combat, verbal contention between two parties. But there are some of the new believers that in these churches that James is writing to. Listen, they were former zealots, very Violent political activists in their former lives before they came to know Jesus Christ. And because of this, there are some scholars that believe that some of these former zealots in the church may have actually become violent in the midst of these conflicts. And all of that kind of makes you rethink our idolized version of the early church as well. And so James now comes and he poses this question, what causes these quarrels among you? What causes these fights among you? And he answers it with a rhetorical question, which takes us to the underlying cause, the root cause of conflict in the rest of verse 1. Look at it. He says, he answers it with this rhetorical question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And so the obvious answer is yes, they are. Our passions are at war within us. We think, this is what we tend to think, that other people are to blame for our conflicts. But James will not let us off the hook with that line of thinking. He will not let us shift the blame here. The issue when it comes to quarrels and conflicts in our relationships is not everybody else but me. The problem James is raising here is not out there, but within here, within us. And specifically, notice this out on the screen in your notes, specifically the conflict among us now is a result of the selfish passions that are at war within us. 
These selfish passions wage war within us. And this internal conflict James wants us to see is what is leading now to the external conflicts among us. In fact, this Greek word that James uses for for passions here is where we get our English word hedonism. You, You may be familiar with that word, hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure at all costs. That's what it means. That's the idea. In fact, it's it's a philosophy of life that says the whole point of life is sinful, self-indulgent pleasure. Hedonism. And these passions, James is saying, are, are centered on self, which immediately takes us back to what we saw in chapter 3 of verse 14, where he highlights that the motivation of worldly wisdom is what? It's selfish ambitions. And so now James is linking these selfish ambitions that motivate worldly wisdom with our selfish passions for hedonism. And James says that these these selfish ambitions, these selfish passions are at war within us, making us miserable in life. In fact, this phrase that he uses, at war, It can be translated as an armed camp. And the implication is that camping within our fallen flesh is an army of selfish passions and ambitions that are constantly plotting and maneuvering and attacking so that they can gain control of our lives. One Bible scholar puts it this way. This word refers to a military expedition where the passions of the flesh are described as constantly fighting to have their way, to be victorious over the spirit, over the new nature which Jesus Christ has given us. And so no wonder another commentary writer says, and I quote, whenever selfish ambition and passions create battles within us, they disrupt relations outside of us. Quarrels and fights break out in the church as well as the family. James cannot make his point any stronger here. He is telling us the cause of the conflicts among us are the result of the passions at war within us. Now, he goes on in the rest of these two verses here, two verses 2 and 3, and he begins to identify for us the fallout of this. In other words, when we when this at war within us, when we don't get this under control by the power of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, along with the people of God, and we allow this to run rampant, this war, and to have the upper hand, here is the fallout now of that. Notice it. First fallout are these uncontrolled desires of ours. Uncontrolled desire. This word desire in verse 2, it speaks of setting the heart on something and longing for that something. But notice what happens when these uncontrolled desires are not met. They're not fulfilled. Look what James says in verse 2. You desire and what? You do not have. And so what do you do? You murder, he says. You covet and you cannot obtain. So again, what do you do? You fight. And you quarrel. Now, this is a jarring indictment about the church of God, to say the least. He uses the terminology, you murder, you fight, you quarrel. We might even think that James is being a little overdramatic here. 
I mean, after all, surely no one in the church literally killed someone else over their selfish ambitions and passions and uncontrolled desires. And the answer is we don't know for sure. After all, is it not within human nature? Do we not see this play out every day in our culture, across our country, within our world? Uncontrolled desires, when they are not met, people do what? Go so far as to even murder. So it is not beyond even Christians here within the church setting in the early church for violence of this kind to take place. We don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that this word for fights, it can refer to physical violence. But in the New Testament, it usually refers to these verbal kind of conflicts. And these verbal conflicts, by the way, can harm and destroy. We have all felt the hurt of that, the pain of that. And we also know, according to Jesus Christ, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we do not need to physically kill in order to commit a form of murder. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. And so another commentator, another author offers this summary. Listen to what he has to say. All our desires and passions are like an armed camp within us, ready at a moment's notice to declare war against anyone who stands in the way of some personal gratification on which we have set our hearts. So just think with me for a moment how strong our desires are in what we are willing to do and say to get them. As Dr. Brent Alcoin says, we do what we do because we want what we want. And James makes it clear here that giving in to these sinful desires is a life of guaranteed frustration. You desire and you do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. James is describing people, in other words, who are never satisfied. They long for something they cannot have. They covet something they should not have. And it only leads to more coveting and more craving. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, writes... The real culture war is taking place inside our own disordered hearts, racked by inordinate desires for things that control us and that fail to satisfy us even when we get them. That's the first fallout, uncontrolled desire. The second fallout of this war within us is unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer. James continues in verse 2, the last part of verse 2 and into verse 3. Look what he writes. You do not have because you do not ask. And he's not necessarily referring to you do not ask your mom and dad, kids or teens. That's why you don't have what you want, because you haven't asked your mom and dad. No, it's, it's you haven't asked your heavenly father. So you, you don't have. And then he goes on in verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so the pursuit of these sinful desires becomes so severe that James is saying we can't, even, we can't even bring ourselves to pray about them. Why? Well, because in the words of, of Kent Hughes, a, another author on the book of James, he says the pleasure-mad Christian who has some spiritual sensitivity realizes his prayers for this, well, they're inappropriate. And so instead of asking God to help us win the war, against our sinful desires, we now just indulge in those desires. We give in to them. 
Ask yourself, do, do I, even now, this morning, do I harbor a desire that is so far outside the will of God that I'm ashamed even to mention it to God in prayer? As if he somehow doesn't know about it already. And James says, he does admit that, hey, some of you are praying about it. You are asking God for it, but you don't receive. Why? Because he says you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so James is rebuking those here for praying with wrong motives. That is only turning to God so that he can kind of rubber stamp our own desires rather than submitting to his will and purposes for our lives. It's kind of like the man who prayed, Lord, bless only me. That's as far as I can see. See, James is highlighting here something for us. He's highlighting a huge misunderstanding of what prayer is about, the purpose of prayer. Listen, the purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we want and to give us what we want. But they here didn't understand that. James is saying, listen, the purpose of prayer is it's a means by which we align ourselves to God's priorities. Part of the point of prayer is to remind ourselves while we're praying that God is is sovereign. His will is what counts. And what is that God wants for my life as I live out this life in honor of him? But for James readers, prayer just seems to be this means of kind of just co-opting God into their plans. Kind of like using God to, to fulfill their own passions. And so it's a little wonder then that they did not receive the things they prayed for Dan Alberry, he puts it this way, and his, his, he, write, he, he wrote a little book on the book of James here as well, and, uh, and he says this. I'll quote what he writes. He says, when we allow the desires of our own hearts to grow unchecked, the result is a lack of answers to prayer, either because we become so engrossed in achieving our goals by our own means, and so do not come to God in prayer at all, or because we come to God treating him as the means to our own ends, and therefore praying with ungodly motives and intentions. If you don't see many answers to your prayers, maybe the problem is with your prayers, he writes. So once again, James is showing us that the world's wisdom, the world's way of living, it does not work. Listen, the presence of conflict among us is a telltale sign that we are being motivated by our selfish passions and ambitions, and we are being dominated and and controlled by the sinful desires within us. But the cause of this conflict actually points us to a, a much serious problem. You see, the conflict among us that shows that we have, first of all, selfish hearts, is also a sign that we have adulterous hearts. And that brings us to James' charge against us here. And it's a very shocking charge, and the charge is this. It's spiritual adultery. Look what James calls his readers here in verse 4. You adulterous people. Whoa. This is shocking. In fact, James intends to 
to shock them in a way. He, he wants to rock their world, and for good reason. James is trying to help them see the churches he was writing to, as well as he's trying to help us see, even today, the danger that threatens us because of our unfaithfulness to God. The charge is spiritual adultery. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, they, like we now, are joined to Jesus Christ. We're we're married to Christ. But like James' readers, perhaps we are now, like them, running after other gods. In doing this, endangers our fellowship with God. And so James is calling this out in a very shocking way. He's calling out the the spiritual adultery or the unfaithfulness to God. And the imagery here is very powerful. In fact, James wants us to think of the whore of a husband or wife discovering their spouse in the midst of affair. James says such, such a horrendous behavior aptly describes now what Christians do when they turn their back on God. What James is doing here, verse 4, he He's actually using the language of the Old Testament prophets who charged God's people, Israel, with adultery, spiritual adultery. Throughout the Old Testament, God describes his relationship with his people like a, like a marriage. And when his people forsake him in sin, it's pictured in the Old Testament as spiritual adultery or spiritual unfaithfulness. One one example of this is is when God says of his people in Jeremiah 3.20, listen to this, as a woman may betray her lover, so you, the you there is in reference to his people, the Israelites, so you have betrayed me, God says, house of Israel. But here's the deal. Very, very few Israelites set out to worship pagan gods alone. Instead, they wanted to worship the Lord and worship the pagan gods to gain somehow the benefit of both. So listen to how God describes this unfaithfulness in Judges 2.17. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. In other words, here's the picture of God's people. They went a-whoring after other gods. In other words, they were prostituting themselves with the gods of the Canaanites while all at the same time trying to worship the one true living God. But just as no husband tolerates a wife who takes on a lover to gain the benefits of two men, so the Lord will not tolerate Israel's lovers here. And so the picture that James is emphasizing here that he's drawing for us is a very serious one. And so just as faithless Israel sought to worship both the Lord and pagan gods, the same is true when when we as Christians attempt to pursue both God and the world. And James says, this this kind of unfaithfulness to God, this kind of duplicity, infidelity, puts us in direct conflict with God. Look what he writes in the rest of verse 4. Look at it with me. And he he poses it in, in the form of a question again. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so immediately we see this conflict with God now. Why? Because notice the point here. Friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. Now, just for clarity's sake here, when James speaks of the world, he's not referring to our planet Earth. That's not what he's talking about. When he says friendship with the world, he's not talking about the physical world, planet Earth. Rather, he is, he's speaking about the world system, the wisdom of the world, the way of the world, the philosophy of the world, the world system that runs contrary to the ways and wisdom of God and operates in opposition to the very purpose of God. And by the way, it, it's not friendship with people in the world that is necessarily wrong. Rather, it is friendship with the the values and the priorities and the wisdom of the world that is wrong, that James is emphasizing here. And God takes this very personally. James goes so far as it says, it makes us an enemy of God. If I may quote Kent Hughes again, he says very aptly, These are painful thoughts. That a Christian for whom Christ died when he was still an enemy of God should in effect lower himself to live as a redeemed enemy of God. And then he adds this. It must be said that those who persist in living as friends of the world are very likely without grace not Christians, despite their claims to faith. Paul, the Apostle Paul, said it like this. He, he describes these kind of people. He said it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. says, For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame, and they are focused. And this is the key here. They are focused on earthly things. Friendship with the world. This is a strong rebuke. This is why I told you at the beginning this is a hard message to preach. It's a hard message to hear. Because James is rebuking these churches he's writing to. And so now when we come to this passage in in application, he's rebuking us if we're in this situation. He's rebuking those who allow their, their love for the world to take the place of their love for God. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 4, they have become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And James, now, he's fully aware of our temptation. And this temptation, we're all familiar with it. He's familiar, fully aware of our temptation to flirt with the world's way of living. We dabble in it. We flirt with it. Because we want to keep one foot in the church worshiping God, and yet we want to dabble and flirt with the wisdom and ways of the world. We're trying to gain the benefits of both. And we think we can get away with it. But the more that we are conformed to the pattern of this world, 
living like this world, loving this world, the more, the more we betray our God and we cheat on Him. In other words, Christians two-time God, when they adopt the ways and the wisdom of the world, and James says this makes us an enemy of God. Scripture is clear. We cannot be loyal to both the culture of this world and the kingdom of God. Their values and their wisdom and their priorities clash. So James asks, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer is, yes, James, we we know that. We know that it's true. And so it's almost like James comes with this follow-up question, then why are you kissing up to the world system, which is at war with God? Why are you flirting with the world? Why are you embracing the world? Why would you ever show the world your affection, your allegiance, when God has demonstrated his love, the outpouring of his love to you with his son Jesus on the cross? To try to serve both systems is spiritual adultery. And it's not only the cause of conflict with one another. James says it puts us in conflict with God. But here's the good news. Oh, there is good news in this passage as well. Because the jealousy of God longs for us to return to him. The jealousy of God longs for us to return to him. God is jealous for his people, and his longing is that those who have wandered in sin would return to him. The Lord, think about it. Here's the imagery, here's the picture, like a good husband. The Lord is wooing his faithless wife instead of seeking a divorce. Isaiah Chapter 54, 5 and 6 says, The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. James puts it this way in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And so again, James is using this marital imagery. God is jealous of us the same way a jilted husband is jealous for his wife. God longs for us to return to him as his redeemed people. Now, to be quite upfront with you, this verse, verse 5. It is by far and away the most difficult verse in the book of James to translate and know exactly what James wanted to say. First, let me just talk about it briefly. First, when James writes, the scripture says, there is no one verse in the Old Testament to be found that he's quoting. And so he's not quoting here one verse, but he is rather summarizing an overall truth that is expressed in God's Word. The second is there is great debate, much debate, over how this verse should be translated. Now, without going into all the details boring you about it, the translations are are basically evenly divided over whether this word spirit, whether it refers to a human spirit or whether it refers to God's spirit. 
that is now indwelling us. And also, there's much debate over whether the jealousy here is a divine jealousy or is a human jealousy. And so you have these two possible interpretations. James is either referring to the, to the human jealousy or the human tendency to be jealous and envious, or, or he is referring to God's jealousy for his people. Now, obviously, both of those are true. Both are true. Scripture testifies that human history, listen, it is one long story of intense envy and strife, selfish striving. And Scripture also teaches that God is very jealous for his people. So both, either way you interpret it, both are true. In light of the context, I, and after studying this, I, actually, I lean toward the understanding that God is jealous for his people and he longs for those who have wandered in sin to now return to him. That, that's my lean. And obviously, that interpretation takes us all the way back to the Ten Commandments when God tells his people in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, whether you realize or not, that is great news. That is phenomenal news for you and I here this morning. It means that God has a a holy love and a righteous jealousy for us as his people. Wow. He longs for a relationship with you like no other. And if you are truly his redeemed daughter and son, he will not let you go. He will pursue you and woo you back. And if you are truly a believer, you will respond. He's jealous for you. Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll says this, God claims us entirely for himself. He is that jealous. He wants our undivided devotion. So what do we do? How do we stop our our love affair with the world and and return to the one who is jealous for us, who has redeemed us, who loves us so much that he gave his only son to die on the cross in our place so that we could be reconciled to him and we are no longer enemies of God. But now we have wandered away and now we are in conflict with him. Our fellowship is broken and we are at enmity with him. And yet he's wooing us. He's longing for us to return. What do we do? Well, here's the healing grace. Notice it is more. The healing cure is more grace. It's time for those who have been captured by the values and priorities of the world to come back to God through God's abundant grace. Look what James says about God in verse 6. But he gives more grace. And we say to that what? Oh, we can do better. He gives more grace. And we say to that, what? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Listen, in about 15 minutes, you're all going to sit in front of a TV and you are going to shout 
at your TV over what the Chiefs are going to do. And I'm telling you, this here is worthy of shouting and getting excited about. He gives more grace. What an incredible promise of hope we have. But he gives more grace. More than what, though? More grace than whatever it is that this world offers you. More grace than your failure to give God your undivided affection. More grace than the power of sin. Listen, God gives more grace for every situation. We have no need in our lives which outstrips the grace of God, and we never will. There will always be enough grace regardless of our sin or our situation. Praise God. Paul says in Romans 5.20, for where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I just love what one commentator writes in his book of James. He says, listen, let me quote this. It's awesome. What comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation, for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. This is the remedy of God for us. Notice that God gives more grace to the humble, though, who are willing to repent of their sin and draw near to him. Praise God. He gives more grace, but notice the rest of the verse in verse 6. James is quoting an Old Testament proverb here. He says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen, God wants his people back. And amazingly, God will take his people back. But this invitation by God, listen to me, it is both an opportunity and a warning. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the opportunity here for us is for the humble to receive the grace, the awesome, never-ending, abundant grace of God. And the warning is God will oppose the proud. Frightening place to live. Andrew Murray says, the truth is pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Do not look at pride as only this unbecoming temper nor at humility as only a decent virtue. The one is death. The other is life. The one is all hell. The other is all heaven. And James is telling us here that the healing cure for our selfish passions, our selfish ambitions, our uncontrolled desires, our spiritual adultery, it is all the cure is humble repentance so that we might receive the healing grace of God to recognize our selfish ambitions in our adulterous hearts, to repent of our sin and receive God's grace and forgiveness. Listen, it is true that God gives more grace. But it is equally true 
that God opposes the proud. But thankfully, he gives more grace to the humble. May, may we here this morning, may, may you and I, may we be humble to receive his healing grace. So James is telling us, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through this chapter of 4 in verse 6, that we must choose between two ways to live. But he's also telling us, he's showing us that there's only one way that works between these two ways that live. Notice it, and you know, there's, there's a world's way of selfish ambition which causes conflict with people and God, and then there is God's way of humble repentance leading to peace with God and people. And so James is calling on us here to make a choice. The world's way or God's way? Will we live with selfish selfish passions or will we live with godly passions? Will we pursue friendship with the world or friendship with God? Will we invite God's opposition or will we receive God's grace? And James is telling us there's no third option. We are either friends with the world or we are friends with God. We cannot pursue both as might as we try. James is calling on us this morning to acknowledge something within our hearts, to acknowledge the reality. And so if we are here this morning and we are experiencing conflict within our lives, conflict at home with our spouse, with our family, our friends, conflict at the workplace, but especially conflict with somebody at the church here, then that is a good indication that selfish passions are lying and at war in our hearts. The selfishness, in other words, James is saying, is the selfishness of the world. It is setting the agenda for us, and the fallout of that is now conflict with others, but most of all, conflict with God. And our first step, You might notice in verses 7 through 10, James actually goes on and identifies several steps for us to take. But the first step here in receiving God's remedy is to admit, to acknowledge what's going on in our hearts and how that has affected our relationship with God and then with others. Then, then we can receive his healing grace. And thankfully, oh, thankfully, God gives more grace to the who? To the humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word here in James. What it says about conflicts. Help us to see the cause of those conflicts is our own selfish ambitions and passions. Even more, help us to see that When we live according to those ambitions and passions, it puts us in conflict with you, Lord. And yet, you give more grace to the humble who are willing to repent of sin and return to you. And so let us humbly draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.